get up in a bath of ice I'm a victim of an organized You know it is true You know this time you're never gonna get it But you've already stole my heart Yeah, you ripped it and tore it apart You know it is true you know Welcome to Cutthroat Queen's podcast Where all the cow shit is stored After the mushrooms are scrubbed from it We're here to take an open and honest look at all things indie horror. My name is Brett Mitchell Kent, and I'm joined by this moldy sandwich I found under my porch, Elton Skelter, and the ghost that haunts (laughs) Danny DeVito's shoe closet, Chelsea Pumpkins. These are just getting nicer every month, aren't they? (laughs) (laughs) Hello. I hope you have some nice shoes. So where we at? What we've been doing? It's March. The year is flying by, and, uh, and the releases, they keep on coming. So we've been been doing some reading. Brett, what have you been what have you been reading this month? Oh, quite a bit. Um, we've been doubling up on my book club. So we've been reading two books at a time, which is just fantastic for all of my spare time that I have. Um, <laughs> but the one that I read that is not a book club book was actually an advanced reader copy of something fantastic. Uh, it's called Oh, good luck with that. I'm not going to be able to say this. (laughs) So it's called Stradivarius. Oh, I'm guessing. That's Stradivarius. I think it phonetically, it looks like it says Stradivarius. I was going to go with Strada. Stradivarius. Stradivarius. Ray. I don't know. Elton. Um, No. (laughs) Yeah, you're the fancy Brit. (laughs) Um, So it's, it's actually, it's by Ray Knowles. um, And it was, it's releasing by Bridget's. Bridget's Gate Press on May 3rd. So May 3rd of this year, which is a, just a little over a month away. Um, there, it's called Strada Various, and it is fantastic. It is this creeping horror about a young woman who inherits the house from her you know, deceased father who was an amazing musician played violin and as she's you know going through the remodeling process whatever she is consistently hearing the playing of her father on this super rare Stradivarius (laughs) violin that um, he was actually murdered over no spoilers because that's like the, the first thing that happens but it is an absolute ride I can't say anything without giving it away but what i will say is the characterization in this novel is impeccable haunting is i guess the best word that i can describe it this is a haunting novel and every single person needs to go and get it i can't recommend it enough at this point so, <laughs> so like, totally what kind of what kind of subgenre is it? is it kind of like a gothic is it a bit romantic is it a bit like erotica like what, what kind of stuff you're working with yeah yeah definitely not well it's not erotica but it's definitely gothic i think that that ray from everything that i've read of hers that's kind of a strength yeah. where she leans so it definitely has a gothic vibe it's it's modern but it's like a modern gothic mm. um and then it's got this you know paranormal slash potentially psychological 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 <laughs> um bend to it. it it's it's really great um yeah. so definitely may 3rd 
we love a pre-order. Oh, definitely do it. I yeah. I can't wait to add this one to my shelf. Um, so sorry, that was one. I don't want to ramble too much about that. It it's the most recent like completion that I have. So I'm like super pumped up about it still. Um, I get this way at the end of great books. But I also read another. This was for our book club book, and I wanted to ask you all a question Ooh. regarding it. Um, it was called The Measure by Nikki Ehrlich. Is so it by the Nicki measure Minaj? By <laughs> Nikki Ehrlich. And this one, I, I'm sorry, it's not an indie book, but there was a piece of it that's just so neat that I wanted to discuss it. Um, so this book is about every single person on the planet over the age of 22 is delivered a box with a string inside it. And that string tells the total length of your life. So if you have a short string and you're pretty young, um, it tells you that you're going to be dying soon. You know, long string means you're going to live for a lot longer. I want to know, would you open your boxes? I would have more questions. Like, is there a measuring stick? Do you know if, if a string is five inches long, do you know how many years that is? Yes. They, they, I mean, in the book, it pretty quickly shows that like the researchers were able to determine down to a pretty good margin when you'll die. Do you I know where open. you're at when you open it? Does it, does the string start at 22 or does it start? It's, so it actually, initially it starts whenever you are, because there's just one day where everybody gets it, oh. you know? Um, so people in their eighties, obviously they know that they would have a long string and they open it and they have a long string, but, and then oh, on okay. everybody's 22nd birthday, the box shows up. So I think I was less jaded at 22, so I probably wouldn't, I would probably think twice about it then. If I got it now, I would definitely open it because Jesus Christ, this is hard. So I would be like, give me the short string, baby. And uh, uh, I hope no it's pretty quick. <laughs> um, nope. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't know. I think back then I would, uh, if it arrived on my 22nd birthday, I probably would think twice about it. I don't know. I think I would open it. I don't know. There's pros and cons, right? So she'd open it, but then she'd bitch about it for years afterwards. Oh, my string's not as long. As <laughs> if I had years left, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, show me your string. I'll show you mine. Oh, what if you um, opened it though, and then Baldwin's was like half the length of it? You'd be really gutted. That, that's a thing. Yeah, like that's one of the the things that they explore in the the book is couples. Yeah, where one yeah. has a very short string, one has a very long string. But I think um, it would be nice to help you. We waste so much time doing things we don't want to do, right? And I think it would be nice. Yeah, I'd give up working. <laughs> yeah. Uh, sorry, guys. I quit. I'm dying in like three years. So yeah. what's the point? Um, I don't know. Personally, I feel like my ADHD would make it so I'm still wasting most of my time. <laughs> I think so. I think the issue would be when I got close to the end, I'd probably get really anxious. And I don't know that I would want to live with that anxiety. But I think the rest of the time. Does it like acknowledge the fact that like, say somebody, um, opens their box and realizes that they've not got the longest life in the world Would the string shorten if they decided at that point in their life to kill themselves or it, that, does, it would, doesn't matter um it doesn't matter it does it, it does address that but yeah the, okay. the string is the length that you will be living regardless of how you know yeah okay so i mean i would assume that if you decided you know trigger warnings are we're talking about um ending lives but the if you decided to go that way, you would probably you would show fail up on your string and already. end up a vegetable. Oh. Yeah, no. Yeah. 
I wouldn't. I wouldn't be able to not. To be fair, I'm very. I would. I, I just. I'm a glutton for punishment. I would open the box and be like, oh. Yeah, I also, yeah, I think having the box and just knowing it's in there, I'm like, well, just show it to me then. Yeah. How about you, Brett? No, oh, no, 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 no. Mm-mm. You're not going to look at not. it. Okay. Nah. I, what if me I and Ellen open it and we show you ours? You wouldn't get FOMO? Oh, I mean, I would probably get FOMO, but I'm, I think that I am. What's the word that I'm looking for where you just do things on a whim? Impulsive. Impulsive. That's the one. Spontaneous. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm impulsive, spontaneous enough to just toss the box. So I wouldn't, it wouldn't matter. It'd be gone. Yeah. I'll that doesn't surprise me. You've, you've thrown out things that you've needed multiple times since we've started this podcast. <laughs> so yeah, I, mean, I just get it, throw it away from there. And what about everyone else? Everyone listening, what would you do as well? We'll uh, we'll tweet about this, and then you can you can send a little reply underneath and let us know what you think. What would you do if you received a box on your twenty second birthday with a piece of string in it that told you how long you would live for? Would you open it? Would you open it? Oh, and we have an Instagram now, so you should follow us. I think. Hang on, I'll look up what it's called. But I can make a poll. How cool is that? What? Do a poll, Charles. We are very fancy. We're Cutthroat Queens Pod, all one word, no underscore on Instagram. You can see some behind the scenes photos. You can always find our episode links. You can see our pretty faces. Yeah, it's good stuff. Are you done with that with your exercise, Brett? Yeah, sorry. I, I just, <laughs> you just zoned out. <laughs> He's so like, yeah, anyway, I'm done. Bye. <laughs> Elton, what did you read? I was very unprepared this month. I had a lot of stuff going on writing-wise and life-wise, but I did manage to pound through a book in one day. And it is a pre-release from Leith Press, and it is called The Helios Syndrome um, by an author called Vivian Shaw. She is very cool. Um, it's kind of, it's got horror elements to it, but it's, it's also got like fantasy elements. So it's about this um, necromancer who works for the government um, in trying to figure out what happens when planes crash. Um, it's really, really interesting. They, they can take a piece of the train wreckage and, and a crystal ball and essentially find out what the problem was when the plane went down, why it happened, and it helps with you know, changing the pattern of, of aerospace engineering in the future. So if there's a problem with a part or whatever, they can use it to, to figure out that out and, and pull that part from, from stuff. It's really, really cool. Um, so basically... This necromancer works for this this government, and um, and then they have this mysterious issue with a plane in the sky that should have run out of gas, um, but keeps disappearing completely off radars and then coming back again on the same trajectory around the, around the sky. Um, and it's really really interesting. And hmm. it's written in this kind of cool, comedic sort of tongue in cheek kind of tone. It kind of gave me Dresden Files vibes. Um, and it's from Leith Press, so it does feature a essentially queer central character. Um, I think possibly bisexual. It doesn't really go into a lot about the, the character's personal life, but there's a bit of a enemies to lovers romance with the uh, the big boss at work. And it's oh, it's just perfect. It is really really good, and it's not a long read. I think it's about 142 pages, um, and I managed to get through it in about three hours. And I just yeah, I couldn't get enough of it. It was wonderful. Um, Vivian Shaw. I don't that know. That sounds like a really cool combination of like modern technology and 
horror yeah. like devices. Yeah. But like the the language used in it, this, this author had obviously either knew a lot about already aerospace engineering or or like you know piloting, um, hmm. or had done a buttload of research about it, and it was just really really good and really interesting. And yeah, just absolutely fantastic book. I think it's available. Uh, comes out on the. I have oh. it if you want. Yeah. It comes out. Oh, I don't know when it comes. Oh, April fifteenth. April fifteenth. But it's on sale now. It's on sale as a pre-order, the paperback for eleven dollars from the Lethal Press website. We will link that in the notes. But yeah, I was really impressed with this. I um, I read a lot of stuff from Lethal Press anyway. I love them. They're one of the oldest indie queer specializing. Uh, presses out there particularly that deals with like horror and spec fic and i just love everything they turn out but this was really really good i was not expecting to get so wrapped up in it but yeah that's awesome highly recommend oh she also has that work in uncanny great. and pseudopod very well, cool we'll link some nice to her I, wanna, yeah. I wanna read that chelsea did you read anything this week um, I didn't finish the book that I started reading this week yet, so I will save that for another episode. Um, but I figured I would talk about a book that I read before that I really liked. So, um, when did I read this? Last summer? Yeah. Okay. How, so maybe how long like it takes six. her to read books to everyone. <laughs> and this is a novella, so you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's only three pages. It's a short story. Okay. It's flash. I I also recently finished the last house on needless street which i loved but um i wanted to talk about this one instead um we can talk about that one another time um so i want to talk about flowers for the sea um it's a novella by zin e rocklin um and they actually won a shirley jackson award for this at Ooh. the last award cycle so that was fantastic um this is kind of like dark fantasy um and i don't always reach for fantasy a lot of times when I'm reading it, I enjoy it, but it's not like a go-to for me. Yes. Yeah, um, but it kind of takes place in this like maybe apoc like post-apocalyptic <laughs> Earth, maybe a second world. Um, there's like kind of clues to both um, possibilities. But anyway, so it takes place on a ship, and this whole society or this whole like version of humanity exists on the ship, um, and there has been a huge issue with like reap like continuing the population and like having children like a lot of people are dying in childbirth a lot of children are dying um either during gestation or shortly after birth um so the story takes place from the perspective of a pregnant woman on the ship and she's gotten pretty far along so the society is very focused on like protecting her but not necessarily because they like her they are just protecting her because she's kind of like a vessel for their metaphorical and physical future um and the character herself comes from a past of a lot of trauma a lot of grief um she's like the sole survivor of a tragedy in her family um i don't remember if she got on the ship by choice or not so there's that um but so the story follows I don't know, spoiler alert, if you're planning to read this, I'm going to give away the ending. Um, but the story follows her like through from late in her pregnancy until she gives birth. Um, and in the end, she gives birth to what we perceive to be some sort of monster. Um, and she fights a lot of depression and like suicidal tendencies throughout the story. Um, and then when she gives birth to the baby, 
I think you kind of expect she doesn't really want much to do with it, but she actually like kind of falls into like a trance with it. And I think she's like then set on like kind of doing this monster's bidding. Um, so she's like, oh, I created this power and I'm going to attach myself to it and protect it. And I don't know, it was really gorgeous. It was like extremely visceral. Um, I do not have experience with motherhood, but this is a story of forced motherhood. Um, so it's very like a lot of pain, a lot of like really heavy emotions. Um, but her prose is like that perfect sweet spot for me in that purple flowery zone where I'm like, it's gorgeous, but it also still makes sense. I'm not like confused. I don't think Zin is trying to trick me or be pretentious. Like it, she just like her command over that story was just so impressive and beautiful. So anyway, That's and there's a lot of relevant right now in, in the social climate, mm. you know, it's a unique yes. take on that. Yeah. There's a lot of themes of like body autonomy. I think there's some definite like classism stuff going on. Um, maybe some xenophobia. Um, when you say it's on a ship, do you mean like a boat or like a spaceship? Yeah, a boat on sea. Oh, okay. Oh, I actually meant, I thought you meant a spaceship too. Oh, yeah. no. It's called Flowers <laughs> for the Sea. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense now when you're like, so you're going to throw that at it. But... Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting because there's like a few scenes, like I said, she does have these like kind of suicidal tendencies where like, I don't know, she might be considering like, throwing herself off the ship. A lot of people do drown in this society. Um, and it's almost like the sea is also protecting her. So it kind of gives this, it made my thought process go of like, she is of the sea's mysticism and the baby is kind of coming from that instead of from the society. So it is this like interesting, Oh, cool. I don't know, combination of like entities and power. And um, does, does it ever give you like exclusive um, details about her history? Like where this abusive backstory came from? Was it? something that's kind of a little bit sort of dubious as to whether or not she is a being of the sea or she's a being. Of- yeah. So there's hints that she looks different. Um, right. um, and yeah, I don't remember that her history was abusive, but her experience on the ship is abusive. Right. Um, but she does, you get her backstory about her family and another character. Um, they were kind of her family, I believe was like eradicated and she survived kind of by accident. Um, but so, yeah, there's a lot of hints of that, that she's different and that she might possess something that these, yeah. the rest of society doesn't. But I like that. And yeah. I think, it was... I think all three of our choices this week have been very sort of dark fantasy themed. Yeah. I would say that. Oh, and this was published by tour.com. Um, so, and I will definitely post a link to order. Um, I had the extreme pleasure of meeting Zen a couple times. Um at a few different cons. So she, I met them at Necronomicon last summer. And then again, they were at the Merrimack book festival in October. Um, and just like such a bright light, super smart, super funny. Um, just very personable. I, I don't know. The second time I met them, I like ran up and gave her a big hug and, or gave them a big hug and they remembered me. And I was just like, felt special. And like, I don't know, you can tell that they care about the community and i think that's really really cool to see that's great i i now have two more books i have to add to my tbr because both right? of these sound fantastic this was a novella too so mine this one's also short i do like um, um i like the fact that in, is... in this 
it's I it's like a shorter novel, but I think it's still considered novel length. It's like seventy five thousand. Yeah, Brett, we look at the camera so we don't talk over each other. Brett. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Elton, what were you saying? <laughs> I was just going to say, I, I, I really appreciate the fact that sort of particularly in the horror community and the speculative fiction community, they are championing the re-emergence of the novella because sometimes I, I look at a book and I'm threatened by a really long word count. I don't always feel like reading something that's going to take me a long time to read. When we've got the the options now of, of novelettes and novellas, I think it's just really, really good because it gives you more of a an option for how to spend your time. If you know that you've got a really busy month, but you still want to be reading, you can pick up a novelette or a novella from a lot of these cool indie pubs. And they are just the best things to spend your time with. You don't have to spend a lot of time with them, but you spend a good time with them. And it's great. I love it. Yeah. No, I totally agree with you. I am really jazzed to have so many like option and format and length options for stories oh one other thing i want to talk about this week i did not participate myself because as you know i'm a slow reader um but a group of horror community folks i don't even know who started it so apologies um it might have been nico i don't know so someone started the um idea to have a trans rights readathon where they would spend a week or more because some people said they were going to the end of the month, but some people only did seven full days. So I don't know. I think it's still technically ongoing until the 31st. Um, but the idea was that people would read as much as they could of stories or books written by um, trans or non-binary writers. Um, and I don't know if this existed in other genres actually, or if it was just horror focused, but I was only tapped into the horror side of it. So um Oh, neat. That's such a neat idea. Yeah. yeah I think the publishers were, were giving away the book for free as well to, to sort of um to, to champion this this activity as well. I know that um ghoulish books gave away their um their most recent um anthology of trans and uh non-binary horror, which was edited by Law Gislesson. Yeah, I think that one's bound in flesh. Yeah, that's the one. Um, yeah, so they gave that away. I think that was early too. It was earlier than they planned and they gave it away for free, um, to support this cause, which is really awesome. Um, and then, so most of the people who did the reading also pledged a dollar amount to a specific cause. Um, and then people could support that. So we, we threw some cutthroat bucks behind a few causes and we will cross promote those on our social media and you all can join in too, if you are interested. So I don't know. Congrats to everybody who completed it and participated. Um, I don't know. A lot of people read a ton of stuff and that's not easy. And it was a really awesome fundraiser and awareness raiser. So at a time when you really sort of need it as well with everything that's going on in the world, I think that's a really, really like cool. Um, you know, a lot of the places that are being supported were, were reaching out particularly to trans youth, um, you know, trying to make life better for people who are currently having a, a terrible time because of horrible people in the government and and yeah rights. legislation just keeps going lower and lower in terms of removing rights from people so it's just whatever we can do to help if and, we and are I mean, able even, to i'm oh, sorry even without the money attached to it um or the getting eyes on some great marginalized authors bringing together a sense of community is always so strong, you know, whether you're trans yourself or 
just an ally, um, just to be part of a community makes a huge difference to people. Absolutely. Yeah. I love events like this too, because there's so many ways to support and participate. Like, like I said, I wasn't reading. So I was just like cross, like retweeting everyone that came across my timeline. Like, yeah, someone see this. And then other people like made lists of books that people could check out. Um, but obviously there was a financial component, you know, people are reading these works, which is really important to the creators. Hopefully they go on to leave reviews and that they get further seen. So I don't know, really cool, to, really cool project that came about recently. Yeah. And by the time this episode posts, it will be on its last day, but we will still sort of tweet some information about some of the authors that were highlighted yeah. throughout the month and, uh, and just go out and support them. They are some very, very talented people we've got. We're really, really lucky in the horror community to have some really, really fantastic and talented trans authors. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah. Does that wrap up our March? I think that wraps up March. Feels much. wrapped up to me. Yeah, I'm really excited to get to our guest. Oh, it's his uh, birthday today as well. So we are uh, we are very very lucky to be joined by this particularly smart and talented author. So talented, so talented, and we will be back after the break with the one and only TJ Price. All right, and we are back, joined by TJ Price. TJ Price's corporeal being is currently located in Raleigh, North Carolina, with his handsome partner of many years. But his ghosts live in northeastern Connecticut, southern Maine, and north Brooklyn. His work has appeared or is forthcoming in Nightmare Magazine, Pigeonholes, the Bear Creek Gazette, the No Sleep Podcast, and various anthologies. His debut novelette, The Disappearance of Tom Nero, is out on May 16th, 2023, via Spooky House Press. He can be invoked at either tjpricewrites.com or via the Blue Bird at Erior. Failing that, one can make a circle of chalk on the floor, stand in the center, and burn a photograph of a loved one until all that remains is ashes. Then, listen for a murmuring from the walls. You may leave your message after the sound of the scrub. Happy scrub day and welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. This is very exciting. It's my maiden voyage on a podcast, so please excuse any nervous pauses or the like. There won't be any nervous pauses. I'll edit them out. Don't worry. You'll sound fantastic. And and beyond that, I mean, Chelsea and I can fill up any pause (laughs) with the sound of our voices. I'll just make a new rumor about Chelsea. (laughs) Very good. Very good. Well, thanks for having me. Pretty excited to uh, finally meet you guys. So cool. We are very excited for you to be here. Very excited to discuss your book. Um, We all got to read it, luckily. And I think I can speak for all of us when I say that it was incredible. Oh, yeah. I gobbled that thing down on an airplane and loved it. I read it it twice back to back straight away. (gasps) I just started again as soon as I finished and just went straight back again. That is exactly how I felt, Elton, when I finished The Disappearance of Tom Nero by TJ Price. I was like, I immediately want to go in the go back to the beginning and like find all the hidden clues. Like it was just such a fun maze. And then after you do that, you just want to message TJ straight away and be like, so I need to know more because (laughs) I need more stories about Scrub. 
Give me all the stories about Scrub. Scrub. TJ, tell us about Scrub. Scrub. Well, I don't know how much I can say about like the book without, I don't know. I've been running into this issue where I'm not quite sure how to talk about it with people because I don't know what elements I should reveal and what elements I should not. So I don't know how to, how to talk about the book without talking about the book. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't want to spoiler it, but at the same time, like, well, it is called, I can see that. It is called. <laughs> <laughs> My cat pumpkin has joined us. Her name is pumpkin pumpkins. Um, it is called the disappearance of Tom Nero. So that is the title. And yes. um, do you have you can, back? You can tell us about Tom Nero. Who is Tom Nero? Well, we don't have to answer your Chelsea's question. We don't have any back copy for it there. I don't believe when we actually publish it, that there will be anything on the back of the book, um, which is an interesting choice. And I kind of like, um, so we, so we kind of um, leave a lot up to the reader. I'm, I'm really, really big on trusting the reader to kind of figure their own way through the maze. And I'm really hoping that the excellent cover art will draw them in to investigate what is inside. Um, we'll see. I, I think that um, one of my favorite ways to encounter a book is just by picking it up and kind of leafing through it and seeing what it has to offer. And, you know, if there's anything weird that catches my eye, like that's one of my favorite ways to encounter a book in like a bookstore or something like that. So I'm kind of hoping that this finds its home with like-minded people. I don't know yeah. if I'm allowed to reveal that I have seen the cover. Am I allowed to talk about that? You are allowed to reveal that you've seen it, but we will not describe doing, it. <laughs> not actually doing a cover reveal until um, the 11th of April, I believe, on um, social oh. media. I'm well, excited to. It's fantastic, and I think that you it will draw a lot of readers to it. Um, yeah. Can you tell us at least who did it? Yeah, yeah. Um, their name is Schism. I believe that's what they go by. Um, her name is Leah. She's a remarkably talented illustrator and visual artist. I've worked with her in the past on a variety of projects. Um, project I recently dealt with was called uh, Collage Macabre, and it is an anthology of art horror. She did all of the interior illustrations for that anthology and um, just was a dream to work with. Gets it, understood exactly what we needed, executed perfectly, open to adaptations and feedback and suggestions and the minute I stopped working with her for that project and we didn't have an artist yet for Tom Nero, I instantly knew who I wanted to work with. So it was very exciting to get to see her take on it. So we will link her information. We'll see if there's, you know, commission information and we'll link that as well below. Um, I, I like that you mentioned that you're keeping the back text just blank. Uh, I had no idea what I was going into when I opened it up. <laughs> just none. I didn't know even what it was about. And I was really pleasantly surprised by it. The, I don't think I've ever read anything like it before the, the way that it, I know that it actually has a name, but I can't remember the word for it, but the, the formatting, how unique it was, how it changed. I just, obviously we can't say much without giving a lot of it away, but would you consider it like a work like ergodic? Would you consider it that way? I think so. I think ergodic fiction generally refers to the use of footnotes, but it also refers to the intrusion of other media upon the written text. As far as I know, I don't claim to be an entire expert on it, but I do, I do very much enjoy ergodic fiction. I love anything that takes the text and does interesting things with it. Um, a notable example being House of Leaves by Mark C. Danieleski, which has had an obvious impact on um, this book and 
probably one of the books that inspired me the most. So yeah, I feel like that definitely comes through um, in it. In it, but it's not like replicative. It's not repetitive. Like the way you used that, the way you used your mediums, plural, um, was like very unique and creative. And I don't know. I you could see the influence, but it wasn't like a copycat. Um, that's how influence works, Chelsea. You're right. <laughs> such a bitch. <laughs> would would it count as like an apostolary novel? I don't know if this fits that definition or not. In, because in part, in part, an epistolary okay. novel usually epistolary. refers to two different letter writers writing back and forth. Um, but I think it's also sort of grown and expanded to incorporate like emails and journal entries and things of that nature, um, which obviously the first part of this is from a journal. So I think it's kind of quasi epistolary. I'm not exactly sure that it fits the definition, but um, it definitely does mix a lot of different genres and a lot of different ways of reading and looking at text. So that is definitely a, a part of my process, I would call it. Oh, that's awesome. So can you walk us through your inspiration for this? Did you go into it knowing how it would evolve and change? It's tough. I feel like, so on its face, The Disappearance of Tom Nero is about the disappearance of a young man, as the title very explicitly states. But it's more about what goes missing in our life and we don't try to find and what goes missing in our lives that we do try to find and what repercussions happen as a result of looking. Um, for a very, very, very long time, I was in a very, very depressed place um, when I lived in Portland, Maine. And the genesis of the story actually comes from various drunken nights at like bars, writing about a person that could just vanish, that no one would like ever be able to find or who knew where they went or what they were doing or anything like that. And um, that kind of came about because of the way that I interact with people socially throughout my life. I've hopped from social circle to social circle to social circle. And often there wasn't a lot of closure in between those times. So it's just like, I would know a whole bunch of people and then all of a sudden I just wouldn't know them anymore. And I think we all have people like that in our lives, um, especially like coworkers. You'll work a bunch of different jobs and you know suddenly you'll forget the name or the face of the person that you used to work with, that you used to see every day. And you'll just think about them one day like, oh, hmm, I wonder whatever happened to such and such a person or, or whatever. So this book kind of, for me, investigates what it's like to disappear from someone's life. And then it also sort of investigates from the other side what someone does to retain that person from disappearing completely or what they use that that person has left behind to try and find them. Obviously, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that goes on in the book um, and from different perspectives. But by and large, that's what's, I think, at the core of, of this particular story. I mean, it's a very interesting story as well. It's kind of told in a sort of tennis match kind of way, where you've got one side of the story told in more of a sort of a, a diary format and another one from the perspective of a writer who's writing it as a short story, um, which is just a wonderful expression of different styles there. It shows the complete versatility of your writing style. But it doesn't pander to anything. I'm, I'm one of those terrible writers where I'll be like, everyone's dumb and I'm going to explain to them via thesis at the end of this story what exactly happened here. Um, whereas you, with not just this book, but with all of your writing as well, you're very open to the fact that you're willing to let the audience decide what happened here and let them take away from it their own meaning. And I think that's absolutely embodied in this book. Um, 
it's just it's, it's an incredible feat to be able to achieve something like that. And I'm really impressed with with what you've done there. So yeah, big fan. Thank you. I I mean that a lot. That that's what I'm striving for. I really like the idea of interacting with the reader in a new way or an unexpected way. And I think there's so much potential in text. And um, you know, it's various ancillaries. I think I can I can kind of reveal there are some illustrations, there's some interior formatting involved in the book, um, particularly in the first part, which is a journal section written from the perspective of the eponymous Tom Nero. Um, and those illustrations in the original manuscript were written in brackets and they were kind of like dummy notes in like a stage play kind of like um you know here in the notebook there is a coffee stain or whatever and um my very capable and talented publisher robert um, atone from spooky house press upon reading the, um, the novelette for submission said you know hey you know there's so much we could do with this we could actually render those illustrations in the text you know we could actually do things like what you're suggesting, we could actually make them a part of the text. And I thought, well, hey, that's awesome. Like who doesn't love like some immersive illustration going on and, and some cool stuff. And we were very, very lucky to have um, Alexis Macaluso um, do those interior formatting and illustrations. So she is to kind of responsible for all of the way that it looks, which for, to me is just, I think it's beautiful. She did a fantastic I mean, job. It, it's a novelette. So it's going to get released as, as an ebook, which is, you know, you can incorporate pictures with it in that. Are you, are you releasing it as a, a paperback or hardback as well? Yes, I don't know. I don't think we're doing hardback. I think we're doing paperback um, for sure. And there's been a little bit of interest in doing it as an audiobook, which it's really funny because um, the formatting doesn't really lend itself immediately to thinking of it as an audiobook. Again, it's you know from a journal perspective, and then it flips to someone who has written a story. So you would have to do you'd have to get really creative with it, which I would really like to see someone do. I, I would really like to see someone take the illustrations and sort of manipulate them and um, use them in like an audio form. I think that could be really, really fun. So we'll see what comes with that. And like, I, as a reader, I disagree that it on like that out the gate, it wouldn't lend itself to audio. I think your point about the doodles and the illustrations makes sense, but I think that an audio, an audiobook narrator could have so much fun with the different voices and the emotions that come up, like an increase in like paranoia and curiosity. And then like, I don't know, at some point tonight, we have to talk about scrub and just like these, these like little haunting sounds that you created through your prose. I'm like, yes, put that in audio. I want to hear what someone can do with that. Um, Especially with like how creative some podcasts get and like even some audiobooks I've listened to that I've incorporated, like actual, like sound mixing and stuff like i would love that so basically what we want you to do is is rewrite it as a stage play (laughs) and re-deliver it Um, but i I actually completely agree with you chelsea i i didn't necessarily understand that i agreed with you until you started talking but imagine (laughs) that like I'm, i'm just trying to picture listening to somebody do this and just i it would be insane and i agree with the stage play too like could you picture a one-man show up there oh. or a woman oh, that'd be so sad you know and Not up there do- it's a story about gay people brett stop trying to erase us <laughs> homophobe well i can't help it elton you have a very erasable face um <laughs> so <laughs> but to circle back <laughs> um I, I did since you touched on the doodles in the margin did you have like what you wanted doodled in that so like you said like i 
I hope it doesn't give away. There was some waves. Um, did you put like waves <laughs> in the bracket or, you know, there are some, there were some, um, I will say that Alexis took a great deal of Liberty. Um, and again, I love it. Um, doing a lot of the illustrations. Some of them are taken directly from the text, kind of like what someone might doodle if they were thinking about the thing that they were writing about and had stopped yeah, that came them, across, you know, write a cigarette or something like that. But there are very, very specific places in the journal that are meant to denote Tom's kind of declining mental state. And it's kind of like what someone might do if words failed them. Um, and they were left to just sort of doodle and scrawl and, you know, they don't really have anything to kind of describe what's happening to them except for through this other medium. So there are definite areas that were prescriptive in the writing of it, but a great deal of the illustrations that currently exist were dreamed up by Alexis. So as, as you're speaking of it, um, it, everything you did is so intentional. Like that's clear when reading it, but also hearing you talk about it and talk about your inspiration, knowing that that's the inspiration. I, it's just, you nailed it in every facet. Like that is exactly what I grasped from it. Um, but then also the doodles, it, it came across so well that that is what it was trying to, to, in you know, show I, without spoiling anything, there were a couple doodles that I thought of as like Mario Hills. Um, those ones specifically, like it felt exactly as you're describing. It's so hard to do a podcast without being able to like really Spoil tone book, in yeah. on And we're, we're so far ahead of release as well. Things. We're a couple of, we're a couple of months out. <laughs> the release date of this one is May the, was it? 16th. May the 16th. So we're, we're, you know, about six weeks out when this, when this episode goes live. So we don't want to spoil it for anyone. But is it available at the moment for pre-order or do you know when the pre-order goes live? Yes, I do believe there is a pre-order link. I have it somewhere. I'll have to um, update it to Chelsea. So I've read a lot of your work because we are friends and um, writer, writing colleagues, I guess you would say. Um, I would say writing friends. I consider TJ a friend. Not I consider friend. you all colleagues. Or, yeah, okay, we can be fine. colleagues and friends. <laughs> Downgrade me, fine. <laughs> Um, so I'm familiar with a lot of like themes that you tend to write. Um, but can you talk a little bit about any underlying theme or message you were trying to get across specifically in Tom Nero? I don't think there was any message really. Um, there's definitely some themes. I like to work with themes. Um, but I don't really think that I was actually trying to like get anything across with this story really, other than, um, just sort of exploring certain like areas of interest to me when it comes to writing um, and, you know, the human experience, et cetera, et cetera. But um, yeah, I don't really think there was any, like any, any kind of message I was trying to push. I don't really know that um, when I write, I actually try to say things because I'm not very good at saying things. So I just kind of, you know, put words together and hope it works out well. And sometimes I get lucky and sometimes, you know, people enjoy it. But um, I would say that the area of my writing that I'm the most efficient in would be actually telling a story story, which is something I'm working on. Um, but I do love the actual act of writing when it comes to, you know, putting words together and stringing sentences together on like a syntactical level. That's interesting to me. So I guess this was kind of an exploration of that as well. Okay. Can I ask, um, it's, it's sort of personal. Um, yeah. You said that you were, you were coming up with a story when you were sitting in bars, just imagining and thinking about what it meant to truly disappear. Was that affected by a particular time in your life where you were, were thinking about 
sort of uh, how it what it means to to exist to other people? Is is it is it something that's come from a personal place for you? Yes, definitely. Um, I think that existing in proximity to other people is one of the most difficult things that anyone can do. I, I think that. Um, you know, one of the things that we are in general afraid of, and the easiest thing to be afraid of is the unknown or things that we don't know. And uh, quite frequently, other people are just a total mystery to me. Um, and that is terrifying. The capacity that other people have to do whatever it is that they are doing at any given moment in time is vast. There's nothing you can do to control it. Um, and so for me, thinking about what I mean to other people is a source of horror because I don't know what I mean to other people. I mean, I could disappear and it could hurt any number of people. And um, that to me is something interesting to explore. The bar is such a, such a transitory place. Like the relationships that you make and form at the bar are often yeah. formed with alcohol at the base. And so you're looking at something that's kind of um, exploded and exponential in quality. Like a lot of the friendships that I made weren't really there when I was sober, but they were there when we were drunk. And sometimes other things kind of came into um, the picture. But I think that, um, you know, sitting there drinking, thinking about like the weight of your life on other lives can be kind of like an existential thing. Um, so I think that's where a lot of the genesis of the story came from is thinking about the weight that your life has on other people's lives and how much you are responsible for it, et cetera, et cetera. And I think the, the the sort of the the location of the bar as well, um, having that factor there, it is like you say, it's an unknown. It's a different place every time you go into it. So it added to the mystery of of, of sort of the the missed connections of the two characters, kind of. And it, it was sort of like a way station between knowing what happened to them and knowing where they were and then where they where they'd gone. It was it was just really beautifully done, and I cannot commend you enough. Yeah, and like not only is it. A transitory plate, transit is the right word. <laughs> Not as only at a way station, as Ellen would say, but you also like in a bar often have familiar characters, like your bartenders are there, like your townies are there. Like, I don't know if someone's there on a business trip, they might be there like multiple nights in a row. So it's like such an interesting place to tinker around with in writing and the different types of relationships you would form. So I really sure. loved it. I feel like, um, it, it was such a, it was a very, very big point in my life to, um, to be at a bar because like you're saying, a bar becomes a very fixed point in your life around which you mm. sort of orbit with all these other people. And I mean, this, this has been explored countless times. I mean, look at, we have Cheers, which is a very, very famous sitcom, obviously where everybody knows your name, um, which sort of deals with the interconnectedness of everyone's lives as it relates to a central location. And location is definitely a big, um, a big thing in Tom Nero. I also wrote it when I was in, um, when I was living in New York City. So the, the vibe of the piece is very urban in a way um, where the city itself is sort of transitory. So you have all these different shifting layers of experience and perspective. And you have people who go to a bar to get drunk and escape from their lives. And then you have people who actually need to escape from their lives. And then you have all these different layers of, of shifting experience, the city itself being different every time you step out into it. So I think that has a lot to do with the motives behind disappearing. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm English as well. And I, I felt like you captured sort of the essence of the city there. It, it, it didn't necessarily speak to me about New York. So I have no frame of reference, but I definitely felt like the city had its own vibe in it. And mm -hmm. it played such an important character and it was really, really beautifully captured. So 
the there's a supernatural component to it suggested but not or is it or is it yeah (laughs) Uh, it's never really explored um scrub 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 and and you know that i love closure and completion so are are there any plans to sort of explore that world a little bit more in the future to uh to maybe resurrect the the spirit of tom nero for another short story or another novelette it's possible i had a um I went to college for theater um, at the University of Southern Maine, and I had this professor. Um, <laughs> I wrote a two-act play for this professor. He was my mentor. <clears throat> Excuse me. And at the end of it, um, the single female character ends up walking off the stage, just sort of away from all of the things that are happening. And that's sort of her arc. Like she has all this importance in the characters' lives, and then at the very end, she just decides that she doesn't want anything to do with it anymore, and she just walks away. And my professor very wisely told me, um, you need to write something about that woman, because if you don't, she's going to haunt you. And I always thought that that was a really interesting thing to say. He was uh, was kind of a genius when it came to playwriting. He knew, you know, the dynamics of uh, interpersonal relationships really, really well. And that's always sort of stuck with me. I've written a story about that woman since then that sort of transfigured into something else. Um, So whether or not she's still haunting me, I'm not sure. But I will say that I have had you know, inklings of continuing this theory, this story in other ways. Um, and there are definite instances when the uh, scrub makes its appearance in other stories that I've written. So if you're reading anything else that I've wrote, you might want to keep your eye out. There's some clues. Anything that you've uh, released this year? Because I know you've had quite a busy um, release schedule from January this year. You've, you've released something, possibly one piece every month so far up until yeah after tom nero so actually yeah that's that's true i have had um quite a bit of publication success lately which is um pretty great go tj it's amazing yes stay busy stay published that's right stay (laughs) writing that's the main thing you're gonna just stay writing haunted stay publishing you know get your stuff out there i think that's very important but um stay writing is the big thing that you gotta do um uh, but yes, to answer your question, I'm not exactly sure that any of the stuff that I've been published recently includes any clues. It might, but I can't remember offhand. I try to sort of insert a link to my other work in other pieces just because I'm a nerd like that. And I think it's fun to. Ryan kind of Murphy, it. but intelligent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we just got canceled by the Ryan. Sorry, Ryan. Thank you, Elton. <laughs> No, I like the idea of like a, a shared universe, um, which I think I think writers have, and creators have been doing since you know day one. I, one of my favorite writers, um, David Mitchell, who is responsible for probably his most well-known book is Cloud Atlas, which they then made into a movie with Tom Hanks and Halle Berry and all that. I haven't seen the movie, um, but the book is directly linked to every other one of his books that he's published and they all exist like in proximity to one another and um they're all they're all fantastic if anyone gets a chance to read david mitchell he's one of my favorite writers beautiful prose i think i think the word um that your your college professor used as well about being haunted is the the takeaway from tom nero i feel haunted by this story as soon as i read it i was just like wow it gave me chills it was something that I, want, I think this is why I'm pushing so hard for you to write more about it. Cause I'm just like, I don't want it to end. I am haunted by it. And that's, mm-hmm. it. that's the mark of a fantastic story to leave you 
with that um, that exiting thought that just won't stop haunting you. And I think you've captured that perfectly in this book. I cannot yeah. wait for everyone to read it. I don't remember, Ellen, if you said this on air or when we were getting set up, but that you finished it and read it, reread it immediately. And that was also my impulse, even though I didn't do it because you know how I am about reading. I am slow. <laughs> so I was like, I got to get to the next thing. Um, but there are so many like intricate tie-ins and like clues and like tiny revelations throughout both in the the doodles in the format and also in the prose and the links between the different storytelling devices that you use that I was like I'm I got to a point like halfway through where I was like I'm paranoid that I'm missing things like I was like I feel like everything means something that I haven't considered like I want to restart it and like look for all the clues which I think is such a sign of your work being wicked compelling so I don't know loved it I think your readers are I think readers are gonna pick it up and so smart blow so up. wicked compelling man did you go to Harvard oh my <laughs> god guy you're gonna no, go to I dunks think, go I fuck yourself you, Elton you... <laughs> <laughs> oh no oh, good. <laughs> Not take the out of the girl <laughs> I think that Chelsea got scrubbed I got scrubbed <laughs> I think, yeah, it's funny. I think both of you are kind of dead on about that. Um, I know I mentioned earlier and you asked too if there was uh, any sort of message that I was trying to get across. And I really guess the uh, the only message I was trying to get across was trying to communicate a feeling of how like invasive thoughts feel. And as a person who has a lot of anxiety, um, just in general situations, I don't really know if there's like a technical term for it, but as a person who overthinks things and reads into things too much and hypercritical, hyper self-aware, that sort of thing, like that's, it's a difficult mindset to inhabit all of the time because your brain is just constantly firing, 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 firing. And if there's meaning in everything, then there could be meaning in anything. And therefore, you have to be more on guard against all of those different things. Mm. And so it wasn't necessarily intentional to include that in the story. But a lot of the story has to do with that sort of, oh, I can't get this thought out of my head. I can't stop thinking about this thing. I can't move my brain away from it. I am, you know, haunted by these invasive thoughts. So I think it's a really good story as well to kind of capture the essence of what you're about as a writer, because like, obviously, I know you offline as well. Um, and I've read some of your other works and I've spoken to you in between writing stints and I think this book really encapsulates the kind of process you use during writing as well as as well as sort of building up this amazing character arc for these these two characters and I think if if anyone's going to start off from reading TJ Price this would be a really good starting place to get the idea of who you are as a writer fundamentally I think this would be I, yeah I agree with that I think that it, it goes back to what I said before um, you mentioned that you're very specific on your prose. And I, I do think that that's kind of an overarching theme with your work in general. It's just, it always feels very purposeful. I don't feel as though there's, you know, some kind of rambling nonsense. Every word that's there feels like it's supposed to be there. And it has a direct impact on what you're trying to push across. I, I know I rambled a little bit, but that was my long-winded way of saying, like, it, it is. That's exactly your work in my experience. That's that's very kind of you. I, I, I thank you because um, I don't do a lot of revision or editing um, after the fact. Often when I feel like something is finished, it feels finished because I'm going through as I'm writing and 
changing sentences to uh, sometimes word choice to avoid repetition, but um, oftentimes the flow feels affected in a certain way. If I use like a different word instead of the word that I had initially chosen, and then that kind of sets off a chain reaction in the next paragraph and sometimes continues on through the rest of the story. So the choices of the words that I use are very, very deliberate on purpose because I'm sort of multitasking, I'm editing and drafting at the same time. Not something I would recommend for a lot of people, to be honest. And I probably one of my biggest stumbling blocks as a writer is that I'm overly critical of what I'm doing while I'm doing it. And this will often kill projects that I'm working on at like a thousand words or something like that. But um, it is good to know that the things that are finished come off as deliberate and edited. Okay, so you talk about how you you edit as you go along, and you do have a propensity for an editing style. I know you've um you've been sort of uh, working for Haven Speculative Magazine for a while now as an associate editor. What is that? What's that like for you? Um, how does that sort of um, impact your work as an author? I knew that when I first started um, submitting to publications and magazines that the best way to figure out what I could submit or what I could get published would be to read the submissions that get sent in to various publications. So um, when I was offered a chance to read submissions for Haven Spec, I jumped at the chance to say, you know, hey, let's see what's on the other side of the coin, just to kind of get a sense of what people are reading, what they like, you know, just to figure out what the temperature of the of readers are. I don't know. I don't know what people like to read. I only know what I like to read. So it's difficult for me to figure that kind of stuff out. But Leon has really, really good taste. Leon, I'm sorry, the editor-in-chief, um, Pernichero, Leon Pernichero, um, really great taste in, um, in reading and writing. He's a writer himself. And um, we aligned on a lot of the same opinions of stuff. Um, he would send me a couple of stories to read that he had already read, and I would send him back my responses on those stories, kind of what I thought needed to be improved or what I thought could be done better, what I thought, you know, was great, that kind of thing. And um, he agreed with me <clears throat> on most of those stories. So um, we move forward with um, like a readership and I read about, I read six stories a week, give or take, depending on what his schedule is like, depending on what my schedule is like. Um, I've read up to 10 stories a week from him. Um, which is great. It's a good amount of stories and um, he respects and values my opinion. And a lot of the stories that I've passed up to him, he's agreed with. And many of them have actually been published in Haven Spec, which honestly, it's so thrilling to, uh, to like push someone through from, you know, raw submission to publication. And it's even better when it's a name that no one's ever heard of. I love nothing more than like discovering a story that's written super well and like, prose is there and the voice behind it is really strong and I can just say yeah you know this is awesome this this should be read by a lot of people and um, being that sort of arbiter of of taste if you will and um, seeing that get published and being able to say hey look at that like I that's really cool and more people should read this and getting them out there there's there's nothing like that there's nothing like that at all so have you found any of your favorite writers through the slush pile for Haven's Back? Haven's still a relatively new magazine. Um, there's probably about a year's worth of issues out now, and we're working on a whole bunch of different ways to maybe um, diversify. Um, I know Leon's been working on his own um, submissions manager behind the screen, behind the scenes, sorry, um, kind of like Moksha, um, but he's kind of developing his own stuff um, in the back end, which 
I think is admirable. I don't know anything about that, but um, he, you know, he wants to do it. And I think that's really fantastic, but I don't really think that I've found any of my favorite writers that way. I have definitely been surprised by a lot of the quality of stuff that I've read. Um, by and large, I find that the submissions are kind of hasty. It, it feels like a lot of the stuff that I read is people who are kind of exploring drafts and um, I, I get, kind of get a lot of what I call the chapter one phenomenon, which is where you'll introduce me to a character and something that happens to that character. And then the something that happens to that character is wrapped up by the end of the story. But there's a lot of loose ends and like we haven't really gotten to know the character yet. There's a lot of world building. There's a lot of details that could be expanded upon. But the story doesn't feel complete. It doesn't feel like resonant yeah. in a way that a short story could. And yeah. I get a lot of that phenomenon when I'm reading the submissions. So it, some of those stories, I kind of feel like these are people who are more familiar with reading novels and yeah. long works than they are with short stories. I don't think that there's a lot of people who read a lot of short stories who also submit, but I don't know. I'm still fairly new. So take what I how say. Would you, how would you turn that reader experience as an editor into advice for short story writers? I talk about this for days. I, I, counsel people to read more short stories all the time um, and specifically flash fiction. Um, people should read more flash fiction, more drabbles, more shorter um, works of fiction, because I really think there's a, a huge amount of talent and discipline that goes into being able to craft something that's very, very small. Um, yes. Some people think it's very, very easy to sit down and just write, you know, a hundred word story or, or a drabble or a thousand word flash piece. And um, those people might be right. You, you might be able to craft something that's, you know, readable in a thousand words, but to make something resonant and to make something feel like it has layers and depth of meaning in a thousand words is very, very difficult. And in a hundred, it's even harder. Yeah. Brett, looking at you, Brett. Man, the, drabble, the drabble queen. Mr. Drabble guy. No, it, it was actually randomly Chelsea when she talked me into starting right to write drabbles. It was TJ's travel that she used as oh, the example. Oh, yeah. That's yeah, right. The one with the cross out in it. The one from oh, Nom Nom. The creative writing assignment. It's yes, in our I, That's so true. I forgot about that connection, Brett. That's mm -hmm. really funny. That was re <laughs> yeah. really early in our friendship. Yeah, it was intense. I mean, it was one of the best like flash fiction pieces that I've ever read. And this, so that's what made Chelsea convince me to start trying to write Drabble. No, I was, yeah, it was like, I was like, Brett, join the Drabble <laughs> chant, join the Drabble group or whatever. And he's like, oh, I don't know. How do you do it? And I was like, well, this is the best one I've ever read. And I took a picture of your Drabble and Nom Nom and sent it to him. So, oh, full circle. Oh, this is so cool. <laughs> that means, that actually means more to me than anything to know that, um, <laughs> That my work was like directly responsible for inspiring you. I, I think that's the best gift a writer can give anyone, a reader or colleague, regardless, just to know that uh, you read it and it made you want to make your own thing. Like, that's great. That's Genesis. Yeah. So, and so I speaking, love traveling now. So it's, awesome. it started a whole little addiction. Yeah, you are our cutthroat travel queen. I'm the pusher. <laughs> so speaking of sort of flash fiction travels and stuff like that i know that you're working on currently working on more short fictions short poppy pulpy sections of, of, of literature and fiction that you can come up with in a, in a very sort of smaller amount of time what's your what's your current sort of plan for what you're going to do with the work that you're working on at the moment 
Well, I took a workshop recently with um, a couple of people and um, I was supposed to write sort of a new piece every week so that they could critique it and look at it. And my whole goal in taking the workshop was to come up with some new material because I'd, I'd felt a great deal of writer's block for quite some time. And so I was hoping to kind of break the spell by being able to write new stuff. But all the new stuff that I wrote was all just centered around old themes like grief, loss. And I mean, you write about what scares you because you want to investigate those things. You want to face your fear. You want to do things like that. And the things that scare me the most are losing people, um, death, grief. I don't really have a lot of personal experience with things like that. So again, the unknown, the things that I'm exploring are, are things that are unknown to me. But I seem to continually come back to these themes of grief and loss. And during this workshop, the three or four micro pieces that I wrote were all centered around those themes. And in the last workshop, I remember saying something just like an exasperation saying like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. You know, it's another story about some ghost that's haunting someone because they're grieving and they're, you know, loss, you know, whatever. <laughs> and um, I'm so sorry that this is such a crutch for me. And one of the other um, workshop participants said, well, I think it's great. She said, I, I think you should lean into it. She's like, I would read a whole collection of these like small, like grief oriented pieces. Like, you know, I think you should do it. And everyone else in the, in the workshop agreed with them. And I thought to myself, oh, well, shit, I guess I should have been thinking the other way instead of trying to get away from these themes that I continually yeah. revisit. I should maybe lean harder into them and see if maybe I can, you know, do more with it. So that was I think an interesting it's, a, it's a universal theme as well, isn't it? Grief is something that someone may not have experienced like you say you don't have a lot of a personal experience with grief at, at the time but it's something that will speak to everyone at some point in their life and to explore the different facets of it and to, to give it that speculative feature as well is, is really really powerful and i've read some of the pieces that you're coming up with lately just snippets of them and you're you're just handling it so powerfully i'm just i i think you yeah definitely lean into it because there's a lot to be mined there and you're doing a really good job of doing it. So I think um, one of the reasons why I align most closely in terms of genre, I mean, I think of genre as a marketing tool. I don't think of it as, as something that can really help you define yourself as a writer. Um, I think that it can, it can help like a prompt, you know, like I don't like to say that I'm a horror writer because I do like horror, but I use a lot of different genre elements and I write a lot of um, fiction that doesn't include speculative elements. And I do a lot of different work with language and I don't like to pigeonhole myself. I do see the value in calling yourself a horror writer and you know, attaching yourself to a genre. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with that, but I do think that um, horror is the element and genre that we can mine to get the most universal reactions. Because I think horror is at its core the most empathetic genre. There isn't anyone alive who hasn't felt dread. And I feel like my goal in writing a lot of the time is to communicate a feeling or, or some sort of emotion with people. And I feel like the easiest way to do that is to scare someone. Yeah, definitely. I would say I too, like having, I, I've definitely probably read, I've read some things of yours that are not yet published. Um, and that, that combined with some of the things that are coming out from you later in this year, um, not only do you explore like loss of another, but you also definitely tap into loss of oneself. And that comes out in Tom Nero as well. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Is that a theme that you're aware of that you explore? Okay. Do you want to talk about that yes. at all? Yes, absolutely. You've got it nail on the head. That's another huge fear of mine is, um, you know, like identity and who you are and what pieces of yourself constitute who you are. Your own perspective on yourself is like a, 
a prism of who you are. Other people looking at you is a reflection of who you are. There's a, I, I had a pretty rough growing up experience childhood wise. So a lot of my sort of tics and mannerisms come from a place where I think about defense more than anything. And I think about how I can placate other people. I think about how um, other people are going to be looking at me so that I can kind of preemptively guard myself against threat. It's a very vestigial thing at this point in my life. It's not like I'm not constantly threatened by anything anymore, but I will never forget feeling like I was feeling threatened all the time. And in order to escape that feeling of threat, I had to sort of prognosticate what was going to happen to me, which meant sort of diagnosing what other people thought of me so that I could kind of remove myself from situations preemptively and, and get out of danger. So thinking about who I am, especially in regards to other people, and the loss of self is like a huge terror for me. And I think um, dealing with loss of identity and loss of self, especially when it comes to um, society and various pressures, things of that nature is like a, a vast untapped underwater lake of horror. Um, maybe not untapped. A lot of writers are dealing with um, identity and loss of, you know, it's, it's like you say, it does span every genre, doesn't it? You can, yeah. you can write about loss of self and loss of um your own agency in, in anything from from romance to erotica to horror to, to spec fic you can you can write about it in anything and it is a, a completely universal theme you know one thing that you know it just kind of clicked for me uh, clearly writing is cathartic right but if you think about the the limited episodes that we've been able to put out so far we've been able to touch base on how specifically the writers that we've talked to in every episode use their writing as that catharsis. And like, as readers, you really are reading somebody's soul with their work. It's crazy how much of ourselves we actually put into what we're putting out there for public consumption and for people to critique and judge so i mean i guess be kind when you're leaving reviews because if <laughs> even if it doesn't work for you you might be you know critiquing something that's very powerful to the person that wrote it yeah and there's Absolutely. definitely a way to be kind and critical and mm -hmm. kind and you can disagree and still not be an asshole yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i feel like we need a whole episode about kindness just to really explore that theme oh, of you can handle kindness and shut up chelsea because the three of us are the most highly qualified. <laughs> I'm kind, just not to you. Uh, I just, I, I'm I, not qualified. I, I admit openly, this is not a thing that, that's nope. <laughs> hey, everybody online, if you consider yourself to be a kind person, please email us at cutthroughqueenspodcast.gmail.com. Tell us how you do it. <laughs> um, we'll need a guest host for that week. And uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe a I, I'm with you, though. I, I think reviews should be considered carefully before they're put out into the world. But if I read a book I don't like, I just don't talk about it. Yeah. I, I don't think there's any need for negativity. The only time I take to Twitter or Goodreads is, and write something about something is when I've really enjoyed it or when it's really left an impression on me. I, I don't really see any need to put any more negative energy into the world that already exists. I'd rather just talk about things I like and enjoy. Yeah. Hmm. I, yeah I, I have definitely have something something. like... I changed my tune on review writing once I started writing and it, it was just more of a, like, even if I read something I didn't like, 
I was running a bookstagram, my own bookstagram account. Right. So I was like, well, my whole thing is like, I still want to leave a review. I still want to be honest and open. And like, I think learning about someone's taste also includes learning what they don't like and that kind of thing. So I did want to talk about books that I didn't really like, but coming from a writer perspective, I think I have become a little bit more open. Like, yeah, this wasn't my jam, but I can see what they were trying to do. Like you would like this or like, I don't know. So it definitely has informed how I read which is interesting. I think there's definitely a difference between being critical and being negative. I mean, I think without being negative, and I think that that's often necessary to analyzing and deconstructing a work of art or literature in in general. I think you have to look at something and say, okay, well, you know, overall, I really enjoyed myself. There's a couple of things I might've changed or I might've done differently or something like that. Or, you know, here's what I thought might've been more effective in this particular instance. But Mm. I don't think that that's an insulting thing to just say like, oh, DNF. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah. Literally just write the word DNF and then like move on. Don't give it a star rating. Just move on. No. Yeah. I I'm actually really picky about that for myself is if I don't finish a book, I'm not going to give it a star rating. Um, If I, if I were to give something a low star rating, which I honestly very rarely remember to leave a rating at all, unless I really loved the book. Um, And that's just because I want to talk about the book because I loved it. But if I were to, it would be, these are the things that I guess didn't jive with me. But everybody's five star rated books are somebody else's one star. Absolutely. So Chelsea and I have books that like she adores and I'm like, what are you talking about? It's so bad. Uh, But we (laughs) we have pretty similar tastes. I was just fighting with TJ over one recently. (laughs) So um, like we also really love certain things. So it's it's impossible to please everybody. So all you writers out there. Like, all you artists you, out there, the all you artists out there, man, just keep doing your thing. You're going to have haters. You're going to have fans. You're going to do whatever you're going to do. Just keep doing it. Just trying to keep better, I guess. I, I also know. feel like getting getting a low star review is almost like a rite of passage. And I feel like it means like you did something right because you did yeah. something like big. Like it's like you mm-hmm. leaned hard into one thing and that person didn't like that thing. But I think it's like kind of proof that you succeeded in something. Yeah, in the way that in, in the way that like stories can all be horrific or stories can all be completely positive you've got that spectrum in between it as well yeah and as writers it's our our duty to take that on the nose and not respond but just as just to look at what the the you know the the thing was that they were trying to say and and mm. take away something from it if we have to it's not really our place to be policing reviews but if no, if we find not. a review that's that's well written that has some good constructive feedback in it, then take that away, move yeah. it on to your next piece, and 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 you know let it live with you for a while. Yeah, one of our most like for ah uh, that's what I call ah uh, that's what I call horror. Ah! <laughs> one of the most like detailed and thought out reviews is a two star review, and it, like when it came in, somebody was like, "Oh my god, two star!" And I was like, "Actually, the review is like very helpful." Like. I'm not going back and changing the stories that are in the anthology, but I was like, it is insightful. I think people would read this and still pick up the book. Like, I'm like, kudos to them. So yeah, like back to the original point, I think you can disagree with something, dislike something, yeah. still leave a review that's honest. And but you can also call out inequality and shitty behavior from people who are putting out stuff that is not good for the world. 
So don't feel like you're limited by that. If you find something that's overtly racist or homophobic or transphobic, you can call that out. Please feel free to. You have my permission. Go. Ellen said do it. (laughs) I feel like like we totally lost our thread here. (laughs) I believe believe very strongly in the whole idea of the death of the author once you've published something. I mean, I think about it. It's weird when you consider like the duality of a reader and a writer. Like I do both. I read all the time. I'm always reading and I'm, I'm writing a lot of the time as well. But when I read something and I really, really love it, it kind of becomes mine in a way. Like yeah. I look at that book and I say, oh, that book was written by so-and-so, but I think of that book as mine. And mm. it's because of my experience with it. It's because of how I interacted with it. And it's because of where I was in my life when I encountered it and what it did to my life as a result. I don't think about it as, I guess when my book is out there, it's my book. Like it's, it's out there and my name is on it and it's my story. I've created it, but I'm not going to own the experience that every single person has with that book because I have sort of died in a way like the death of the author is in order for the book to be born, the author must die. Yeah. I really think that's just how it is. I don't every, know if that's every true single or not person who reads it is raising some bastard child version of that <laughs> yeah, book. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. in their own experience, just, in their own way. Maybe just keeping it in the attic, you know, mutated version of your book oh is living God. in the attic. I don't know. I love it. I do think that's a beautiful perspective though. And I've felt that way. Like um, I've been in a, a few different book clubs and once in a while I'll read a book that I love so much. And that felt like it hit me personally. And I won't, I'm like, I remove myself from the discussion because I like, don't want to hear criticism. And like, maybe that's silly, but like, I'm like, no, this meant so much to me. And I loved it so much. Like, I just want to like be in my little bubble with this book. Yeah. And that's why I refuse to talk about Alice Hoffman with you and Practical Magic because that <laughs> Sorry, book. Sorry, I didn't like Practical Magic. My life. And you're like, oh, no, it was boring. I also didn't <laughs> like Practical Magic. <laughs> yes, bitch. That's a lot of you. Okay. Alice Hoffman is a I, fucking genius. I have <laughs> never liked anything she's put out. I have tried. I've never so not liked anything she's put out. I love that woman. She is just a treasure. Absolute TJ, treasure. Listen, Alice Hoffman. Exactly. Yeah, you're nice. I have not read. Probably because it's not probably because it's boring. Fuck off. <laughs> I'll read anything. I don't I don't care. I'll read anything. All right, your new homework is practical magic. Okay. Your new homework Alice is Hoffman. the rules of magic because then she gets like into the ants when they're younger and and they have an uncle called vincent who is gay but not really gay kind of just incidentally gay and then he disappears because he gets him in the back it's really good you should read it all in <laughs> audiobook because hey, i'm always adding, you can't read i'm always adding it to my list I've, I've got a list that's you know the longest in the world i'm sure everybody can you know empathize with the the, the long list yeah. of books that need to be read definitely oh, it's unending speaking well, of though do you have any recent reads that you loved that you think have or will influence your writing? Oof. Oh, big um, Existential. That is a good question. I'm always reading to discover new things, um, new voices, new concepts, new syntax will always kind of spark something new in me. Um, I've been reading a lot lately. I'm trying to think of the last thing that I read that really, really got to me. Um, gosh, so many. I should check my Goodreads. <laughs> <laughs> okay, wait. Flashback. I got to meet TJ in person almost exactly a year ago. And <laughs> one of the questions he asked me at this brewery was, what's like the last, or I don't know, you're like, what are your top three favorite books 
you can't look at Goodreads. And I was like, you bitch. (laughs) But it's such a challenge. Like we are, we definitely rely on like other things kind of being our memory now. So it was a good question. But it now, is. now you get to answer it. <laughs> now I get to answer it. Okay. Well, the last couple of books that I read were um, pretty all over the map. I read a, um, a book of short stories by an author that was recommended to me um, that I enjoyed. They're kind of slow, but the pacing was interesting. Um, it just, it's a collection of stories called Volt by Alan Heathcock. Um, it was recommended to me by Christy Noble, who is one of my favorite living modern weird writers. I mean, I, I don't need to qualify that. She's one of my favorite writers, I think ever at this point um her collection the best of our past the worst of our future is just the first of i believe a trilogy of collections of short stories she's going to have another one coming out in september called promise which is a weird like science fiction black mirror-y kind of stories um she's her prose is like mesmerizing she does things with language and concepts that are like they're so mind-blowing and, and she's just amazing. I'm very, very happy to be working relatively closely alongside her and learning from her. Cool. Um, so that's a big one. Um, what else? What else? I read The Black Maybe by Attila Veris, who is a Hungarian writer. Um, it was published by Valencourt Press. It came out earlier this year. I think it might be up for some awards. It wouldn't surprise me because it's really, really interesting and weird. Um, lots of really cool concept work being done there. Do you have any favorite shorts from, you just named like three collections. Do you have any favorites from them? From them. That you can remember off the top of your head, but I know sometimes it's hard because I don't always remember the titles. Um, Well, from Christy Noble's collection, um, one of, a couple of my favorites off the top of my head, the second story called In the Country, which is an investigation into um, vanishing. Are we sensing a theme here? Mm-hmm. Um, oh, TJ loves disappearing. <laughs> as well as um, pareidolia, which is the phenomenon of um, perceiving phases and patterns in chaos when they might not necessarily exist. Um, another fantastic story from that collection is called Mirror House, um, which is about a um, physical artist who does work with like panes of glass and mirrors and works with like, uh, it's a fascinating story. I can't do it justice just by um, summarizing it. And um, there's just so many great stories in that collection that I could revisit over and over again. But those are the two that I remember the most from Christie's collection. I read her story. Oh no, Brett has to leave. Um, I read her story in Aseptic and Faintly Sadistic. I hadn't gotten that far in our last episode with Jolie, um, but it was fantastic. yeah, she just totally nailed it. She and she experiments in really cool ways in cool ways like her sentence structure and her narrative structure where I could picture myself like maybe a year ago if I were critiquing it, I would have been like, "Oh, this is like you should fix it." Like in terms of a like prescriptive writing um what, what I want to say. Prescriptive writing instructions, like it would kind of defy the rules, but it worked really, really well. And so I love reading stuff like that. I find it really inspiring. Um, because it makes me take my own take makes me take risks in my own writing. And usually it pans out to be exciting. So I think you have to do that as a writer. You just have to constantly be experimenting with all the different ways. I mean, language is like a Swiss army knife. You can use it in so many different ways. You can well, you can't use it open a bottle. It's but... the best way. <laughs> What'd you say, Ellen? Using it to cut is the best way. <laughs> I thought you were going to say um, you can't use it to open a bottle of wine, but 
Well, if you have a screw top like Ellen, then you're all set. Everything in the UK is screw top now. Really? Yeah, you can drink on the street now. It's great. That has nothing to do with needing a screw top. Well, no one's carrying a wine bottle opener around with them, are they? <laughs> TJ's a wine snob, I learned. Um, he judged my Costco Kirkland wine. So, TJ, what do you think about screw tops? Well, the screw tops don't necessarily betoken any sort of like level of quality. It's just yeah, that Chelsea have access to cork. I'm not saying they do. I'm asking your opinion. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it's kind of like a it's it's a cultural stereotype that screw top has less quality than the ones that have corks but that's not always true either i mean corks can you can also get like cork you can cork a bottle of wine by using the cork like it can actually um infiltrate the wine itself and destroy its quality by using a cork so a lot of vintners have gone to using screw tops okay and can you tell us what you're drinking to contribute to your expertise okay, so this please? Is totally demolish all credibility <laughs> about wine Okay, I this see. This was a setup and a murder, so please answer Oof. my question. <laughs> All right, well, let me pull the knife out of my back. I'm drinking what I call jocularly an old an old trashened, which is bourbon and monster energy drink. Thank you, Chelsea. Is it actually yeah. bourbon? And that's not or a screw top, you... actually. I mean, the bourbon probably is, but <laughs> the bourbon, the bourbon actually has a cork. <laughs> <laughs> so, TJ, what have you uh, had out so far this year? What have you got coming up? Have you got a list of uh, places that we can find your work? Yes, I have had a bunch of stuff come out this year. Um, in January, I had a small flash piece come out on pigeonholes. Um, it's just a flash piece. It's called uh, Such Small Crimes. Okay, calling um, that just a flash piece is reductive because that piece is incredible. Like, we tweeted about it on our account. Um, when it came out, but I'm going to redo it because everyone should read it. It was so, so good. Don't be so reductive, TJ. God, you're here to like build yourself up. I'm here to brag. Down. I brag. tried really hard. I tried really hard. It slipped out. <laughs> I know. Something he's like, negative. everyone, oh. my advice to everybody is to read Flash. And then he's like, I don't know. It's just a Flash piece. I know. Yeah, we should cut that out. I didn't mean to say that. I, I will not. No, I, we like it when we <laughs> talk shit to people. So we're going to leave it in. <laughs> Um, I'll take out all the stuff that I've said that's bad, but the stuff that you say is bad. I'll say things. Okay. <laughs> I see how it is. Great. Awesome. Everybody come on Cutthroat Queen's podcast. They'll make you look like an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> that should be our tagline. <laughs> we'll look great. You'll look shit. <laughs> no, we want you to look amazing. That's why well, I bragged okay. about you. Okay. Now we've reached oh, the cutthroat oh. portion of the episode. Exactly. Um, and okay. So, portion. Oh, let me see. Let me see. Okay. So such small crimes came out in pigeonholes, um, January, 2023. And then I had a triad of poems that I group titled, Oh, my heart curled like a fist around ropes of blood. Damn. Uh, they, that was published in Crow and Cross Keys in February. Um, it includes my poems, The Seafarer's Wife, a poem called Dissever, and a poem called Harvest. Um, in, also in February, I had a short story called Old Man Vreen, um, like green, but with a V, uh, published in Erie River Publishing's um, anthology of folk horror called The Old Ways, Volume 1. Um, it was curated by Holly Cornetto and edited by um, S.O. Green. Um, that was pretty cool. There's a bunch of awesome stories in that volume as well. And most recently, I had a story of mine adapted for audio for the No Sleep podcast. Um, that story is called Stasis. Um, it was on episode six of their 19th season, and that was slightly earlier this month. 
Uh, I think that's all the recent publications that I've got. Um, forthcoming, I have a few things um, in various anthologies. Collage Macabre, as mentioned previously, dropping in April. I'll have yeah, a short we're going to have a whole episode about that. But I was lucky enough to read an early version of your story in that. Do you want to talk like for a minute about your experience with Collage Macabre? Okay, yeah, it's Collage Macabre. Um, awesome, super fun, community-oriented labor of love. 18 stories from a bunch of really talented people all circling around the theory of art horror. Um, I sort of served as like an editor within the fellowship of people that worked on the stories. So I'm kind of intimately acquainted with most of them. Uh, did a lot of the like graphics work for the social media and the marketing and all of that um, involving other people's stories. And my story is about a very dark black paint that um, causes some issues in a relationship between two guys that's already kind of troubled and exposes the cracks between them, that kind of thing. Wow. Awesome. Looking forward to yeah. that. I yeah, I'm really excited. I haven't that, Ellen. I said I've got a copy on my Kindle. I'm desperate to to lean into it, but I needed to focus on rereading Tom Nero again this month. Yeah, I'm really excited to dig into Collage Macabre myself. It's going to be good. What else do you have coming out? Um, that is coming out, I think, on April 18th, Collage Macabre with, I think, did I even say the name of my story? I don't think I did. It's called Lack, um, which, if you notice, is one letter away from Black. So oh. Fun little language fun there you know such such a Um, tj price move love it (laughs) um and then in june i will have a story releasing in the anthology howls from the wreckage um entitled heavy rain which um deals with aspects of body horror body autonomy um various horrible things happening to people i'm not alone in that anthology that one also has a devastating story from chills a minute yeah brett gets uh, it's too bad brett already left because he um yells at me bi-weekly about my story and that so good times <laughs> it's a great story i love it i remember when you Thank were drafting you. it and it was um something you were working on and that was really fun to be a part of so that was a really cool process in general yeah i'm excited for that anthology for sure yeah, fun. all right think, you have a I lot of stuff coming out and it's all so good and so you oh i think um i think there's oh the poem that i have coming out in nightmare um i don't yes. know when that's coming it's just coming out at some point it's just called dread tell you us your socials about- tj yeah tell us where to find you it was kind of in your bio but like we should hear it from you because you pronounce it correctly <laughs> I, honestly i never really thought about having to say it out loud so that's something i learned today um thanks brett rest in peace Um, (laughs) (laughs) yeah brett go back to your day job loser oh poor brett um yes you can find me at tjpricewrites.com and on the bluebird at erior e-e-r-i-e-y-o-r-e i think the thing that was throwing brett is that you called it the bluebird and not twitter he didn't know what you were talking about i don't like to say its name we've never talked about this actually that our intro and outro song is an Ellen Skelter original. Oh, I knew that. I could tell from listening. He knows me. Those dulcet tones. Mm-hmm. Those dulcet 
British towns. British in an American accent. British. British. Water bottle. British. Water bottle. Water bottle. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you for joining us, TJ. This has been a really great conversation. And thank you, every listener out there, for joining us for Cutthroat Queens. This episode has been sponsored by Tide Podge, which will scrub the stains right out of your clothes. And also sponsored by Wine Coolers, which keep Elton Skelter alive over there in the UK. So uh, hope to see you next month. Waking up in a bath of ice. I'm a victim of an organized You know it is true. You know this time you're never gonna get it. But you already stole my.